Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. We're here with Michael O'Sullivan with Nutanix and Cesar Bravo Bravo with Honeywell. Gentlemen, how's everything going in your world today? Mike, go, why don't you go ahead and start us off, buddy? Good. Everything's good. It's sunny in Houston and it's not, you know, it's not raining and <laughs> yet. I mean, yet. So it's good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, good deal. Cesar, and, and for all the listeners out there, you probably wonder why I said bravo, bravo, but that's Cesar's first name. He, he just actually informed me of that. So why don't you go ahead and tell us how your week's been? And, and, and you gave a little story as to why you have two last names. So why don't you go ahead and give us a little insight there? <laughs> Hi, how are you doing? Good. Everything okay from my side. And, but it's sunny Houston. We are all indoors <laughs> yeah. right now, but they say that, that there is a good weather outside. Well, yeah, in, in Latin America, we used to, to use two last names and it happened that my mother, my mother and my father has the same last name by oh, chance. Okay. So that's why I am Bravo Bravo. So I go. like it. I love it. You must, you must be the, the highlight of the party when you're, when you're out doing yeah. things. I could see myself cheering Bravo Bravo all night long. A lot of teasing in, in elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, it only builds character, Cesar. So that's okay. Yeah, that's right. Very good. Very good. Well, you know, before we get going, I just want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, who's Technip FMC. Their fully integrated FrackNow system gets to actually first oil faster by doing things just a little differently. They leverage flexible pipe automation and advanced digital capabilities to deliver greater efficiency with 80% fewer connections. This means an elimination of human intervention in the red zone, making your frack pad faster, safer, and smarter. Click the link in the show notes to hear more. So, gentlemen, I'd like to start off with, with making introductions, you know, telling us a little bit about yourselves, where you're from, and how you ended up where you're at today. Cesar, why don't you go ahead and get started with us? Sure. Well, I'm from Venezuela, actually. I came to, to the States around 10, 10 years, maybe a little bit more. I've been working in oil and gas for all my life. You know, I have a mixed background, system engineer. I have a background, a master in, in automation and control and a PhD in artificial intelligence, but I've been working all my life for, for oil and gas, 20 years in the industry, mostly upstream. You know, I spent a lot of time working for national company and service company for upstream operations, specifically in, in digital field. So digital field, digitalization, uh, workflow automation, that, that has been my area. And then recently I, I make a pivot and I am working more for downstream Eastern right now. That is a very interesting challenge. I'm working with Honeywell in that in that front. Digitalization as well, digital transformation, but for let's say the, the downstream area of the business. So and that that has been terrific for me because you know it spanned my 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 breadth of knowledge in the industry. So 
Yeah. And while I've been researching about digital oil fields since early 2000, maybe maybe before of that, and I've been, you know, witness of the evolution of technology and the evolution of the concept itself. I'm glad that now we are all talking about digital transformation, about artificial intelligence, things that were just, you know, let's say it was a kind of science fiction around 2000 to talk about, you know, artificial intelligence in oil and gas or at least episodic implementations. Now we are talking broadly about that. So that, that's Well, it's interesting you mentioned that actually because digital transformation and automation and all that really has been, at least from my experience, and I've been in the upstream sector since 2004, but from the 2014-16 downturn, I feel like that really catapulted a lot of that, the demand for that through increase, you know, because as people needed to do more with less, they needed to reduce CapEx, they needed to increase efficiencies. Well, what does that look like? Well, we need to digitalize everything. We can't have everyone doing, you know, everything manual, whether it's paperwork, whether it's this, whether it's that operationally. But did you see the writing on the wall back then to realize that was the future? Or was it just as something that interested you or because it's pretty interesting that back then, you had such an emphasis in that world without it really being talked about, or at least maybe it was, but not nearly what it is now. Yeah, you know, before that time that you were mentioning, the, let's say 2012 onwards, 2014 maybe, uh, more accurately, before that, there was a push from industry leaders, from the big IOCs, the super majors, to always invest in technology, how to apply the, uh, you know, leading edge, the state-of-the-art technology to improve operations. But uh, was just for the front leaders to implement and a very shy followers, let's say, that implement that kind of solutions. But around that time, 2014, two big things, you know, make a confluence. One is the situation of the market. You know, the big downturn in 2014 made the companies in the need of looking for, you know, how I can reduce costs, how I can be more efficient, and how I can apply technology for it. But at the same time, the evolution in technology, evolution in cloud provisions, in artificial intelligence, in, in computing power, edge, IIoT, etc. All of that has a boost between 2007 and 2008 to mid-2010s. Uh, you had a big evolution in technology. And with the big evolution in technology, the cost also reduced in most of the technology that we use nowadays for sensing, for analyzing data, etc. So when you mix those two facts, from one side, there is the need to optimize, to use technology to optimize the processes and get better efficiency. And from the other side, you have a huge evolution in the technology. Then you have this, this push for digital transformation. Right. So back then, was it more focused around upstream or downstream or was it a pretty good mix of both? So it's a mix of both. It, let's say that there is kind of a path that happened. So uh, let's say before 2000, mid-90s, the focus was more in, in, in instrumentation and control. Who the SCADA system, you know, instrument, get the instrumentation in the field uh, or in the refineries. Then around 2000, it started to, well, now I have some level of automation what I can do with the data, what else I can do aside of, of monitoring and of doing supervision. So you started to see some applications on top of SCADA. And then came the need to do integration of data. So how I integrate data from different systems, different applications that I'm using. So that, you know, let's say, define a lot of what was that time, early 2000. So how I can get data integration, how I can integrate data from different sources. And then when you get some level of maturity there, came the workflow automation. So now how I can orchestrate 
application and data sources to create some value. So, and there started the initial digital oil field programs. So the field of the future from, from BP, smart field from Shell and, and some other, right? And KOC with the, the implementation of their digital oil field over there. So there you started to see large project of workflow automation, mm. right? But after that pass, so that, and I remember being part of those programs by, by that time, uh, we were struggling because we were using technology that were not suited for the purpose that we wanted, but we made it work, right? And there was a, some limited capacity to create true automated workflows to create value. But then, it's, you know, you started to get more and more technology accessible. And then the problem is not only to instrument or to integrate the data or to automate the workflows. Is what I can do to improve the process itself, What, how I can get insights to improve the process and to optimize the process. So how I can take all this data that I have and how I can leverage all these applications to get something else. And there you started to start to see more application of artificial intelligence. We started to leverage cloud, for example, the capabilities of the cloud to process more data. You started to see using IIoT technology more widely and, and start to look for new data, not only pressure and temperatures, but video, how I can use video to analyze what happened, how I can use drones, for example, to do remote supervisions. So you see it's an evolution. And that evolution came to a point that digital is a must. Digital is part of the, the strategy of the company now. It's not just, you know, IT or the automation department that is leading the digital programs. It's not a pet program in the company. It's one of the main elements, the main component of the strategy of the company nowadays. Yeah, no, and certainly I have a lot of questions. It's a lot to unpack, but I do want to, you know, I don't want to overstep here. Michael, obviously, who's with us with Nutanix. So, Michael, why don't you give a quick rundown, you know, who you are, what, you know, a little bit about yourself, how you got in with Nutanix, and then, you know, we'll get more into, you know, some of the topics that Cesar has discussed. So, thank you. I have a keen interest in some of the things that, that Cesar is talking about because I think there's a, an aspect of that where, what I'm doing with Nutanix and what he's doing and a lot of other people are doing kind of all comes together. And that last thing that he was talking about, kind of all these, the IT and the OT worlds converging and things like that. I started with uh, Nutanix kind of toward the end of last year. And with the idea, kind of the mission was to be the connection between Nutanix and the oil and gas industry and kind of help us understand the industry and align our offerings and what we're doing to create, you know, the most value and also help the industry in this community that I've been part of for a long time, know more about Nutanix and who we are and just kind of build that relationship between Nutanix and the industry. So, and I've been involved in oil and gas for a long time, but mostly through kind of from the vendor side, you know, from the, the evil vendor side of the business where <laughs> yeah. originally in consulting, like large IT consulting, and then with some software companies. But my career has always been in Houston. And so my clients and my customers, my partners have always been in the industry, whether it's operators or service companies or, you know, or EPCs or what have you. So the thing that stands out to me, kind of where some of this all comes together. Some of the things that Cesar is talking about are pretty well established. Like that little, that was a good history lesson. And we see how, you know, the industry finally got kind of serious about digital transformation. And even after this most recent kind of minor dip that we've had in the market, and they're not really abandoning it. Like maybe back during 
after around 2014 and you know everybody kind of kind of froze up and just stopped doing a lot of things well we see a lot of these initiatives now continuing forward because the importance like it's so critical to the future success and survival of the industry the thing that's interesting is so some of these things Cesar, that you mentioned about what we can do with the data and the analytics. And, you know, now that we can get at that data and we can do all this really interesting stuff with it and we can drive those decisions back out into the operations to streamline the operations, et cetera, you can speak to all of that really well. The thing that stands out to me is that, and it was kind of highlighted in an article, McKinsey put out an article earlier this year in March, I think, that said, and I forget the percentage, but it was a large number of digital transformation efforts stall out during what they called scaling, which so many of them, once you start scaling, once you start deploying in the real world, which we know in this industry, you know, whether you're talking about upstream and whether you're talking about offshore or any other segment or onshore or, or whatever, it's really the real world deployment is complex. It's distributed. There are these old systems that we're trying to meld together with new systems. And so the question to me has been, as I've been looking at this for the last few months, is so many of these analytic solutions, these new cool digital things that we can do, they work really well kind of in the lab, right? Like in development or in some sort of pilot or proof of concept stage. But then when it comes time to actually to roll them out and deploy them at scale in a complex environment, you know, let's say in the Permian, and how do you deploy and operate these things and it gets messy when these new digital solutions that kind of run on certain types of technologies and software and cloud, when they come together with, like you mentioned, these SCADA, traditional SCADA systems and other OT systems that are out there. And, you know, we always talk about like the guy who's got the PC that runs like everything connects to this one PC and it has to be this one and it's running Windows 7 and it's the only box we got that has this particular SCSI connector on the back of it. And, you know, all of those little things that those complications that you run into in the real world and how do you operate in a scale? So that's been my interest for a while. And when I think about and when I first met Cesar, he was working in this digital oil field area that he's been talking about. And that was a conversation that we had late last year, which is how do you get these solutions from their kind of POC stage where they look like they hold a lot of promise to bring value to the business, but then when they get into a real world deployment, how do you deploy and operate and support those things at scale? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And say, sir, I mean, how would you reply to something like that? Yeah, definitely. That is one of the challenges of the success of the program for digital transformation. And let me give you a couple of insights about that. First, one of the, let's say, of the shortcoming that we have in oil and gas as an industry. Oil and gas has been, from the technology standpoint, let's say, traditional industry. So we, we spend a lot of money, of course, in, in technology. But the adoption of new technologies is, is kind of slow in oil and gas in general. You know, because the business, you know, works as is. So there is some resistance to the change. So I've been doing this with my, my pumper and my operator for many years. Why I'm going to change, why I'm going to put money in digital if I can put money in drilling a new well, for example. That is the kind of conversation that you have in the field. So that's why most of the companies has been, you know, creating this kind of task force, specific task force to do analytics. And there are kind of some weird guys in the lab doing some, you know, experiments. And, you know, 
then you cannot scale that because these efforts are not seen as integral part of your operation. as seen just a, an experiment that you have there. That, for me, is one of the, the barriers that we have. I have seen some companies investing in creating digital as a mainstream. So whatever we're doing regarding platform, regarding cloud, regarding edge implementations, whatever we're doing in the front is an integral part of the, of the strategy of the company. It's not you know, just an example or an exercise where we are doing with some guys in the lab. It's something that is part of, of our strategy and therefore we're investing on it. And therefore the adoption is a must. It's not, it's not an option so yeah. on one side. But the other part is the way to get success and to get a rollout that is, re- is, is really impactful is when you tie the results of the implementation of digital technologies to the financial outcome of the company. And that has been a very, very, you know, important failure, if if you will, or at least a a shortcoming there. Because usually you apply some specific technology to improve non-productive time in one specific well, but when you try to see the projection of that result in the financial of the company, that is not clear, that link. So the leaders in the industry need to be able to define what is the link between the investment that you are doing in platform, in cloud, in edge, in artificial intelligence, and how that is going to, to, to get a benefit in the financial outcome of the company. And there you are going to have the secret sauce because when you see money, the, the people are going to say, okay, we need to invest on that. Yeah. Well, I think it's like anything in business. It's, you know, the question that it always is, well, what's my return on the investment? And it is unclear. I mean, the company that I work for, we spent a lot of capital on some different things that, you know, we weren't really sure. We, we had a vision, and but we weren't entirely sure what it looked like getting there and maybe the added cost and just the capital risk involved with, okay, we get to this point. Well, it's still not quite there. And now we got to spend more money to get to the end result because things are constantly changing. And so, but you're right. I think there's a disconnect between the two. But I mean, how are companies managing that? And especially right now where people are super risk adverse, they don't want to spend a lot of money. I mean, you know, and then interestingly too, and I was going to mention this, you know, companies like yourself, Honeywell, other companies, Google, not really much, I guess, anymore, but Amazon Web Services, there's a lot of outside influence coming in and allowing companies to leverage their experience and resources to, you know, add value into the oil and gas ecosystem can you talk a little bit about like how companies like yourselves are really entering the space and providing that clarity to these companies and kind of holding maybe holding their hand through the process of making sure that they're putting their money you know in the best spot possible? Yeah, definitely. There are some things very interesting happening across the board in services companies, in technology companies, and in operators that you see more and more the leadership embracing the digital transformation, embracing that as an integral part of their strategy. In Honeywell, our CEO from Honeywell and from from Honeywell Connected Enterprise, they are fully embracing the digital transformation. You see the earning calls always is related with digital, the how you, you we are improving uh, capabilities regarding software development, regarding digital technologies, regarding cloud, regarding quantum computing. So it's a key part of the strategy of the company. And then you mentioned something that is very interesting, that you have people coming from different industries and collaborating in order to create momentum in digital transformation. You see alliances between Microsoft and services companies, between AWS and services company, Google, 
you see interesting companies like C3IoT, for example, that has a mix of, of components from different industries. You see Nutanix that has the dedicated view to oil and gas being a cloud delivery company and a digital delivery company. So these kind of collaborations are needed, right? Because you have a domain knowledge in the industry and you have people that, that know how to produce process hydrocarbons. But that understanding, not only from the technical standpoint, but from the business standpoint, and how digital is managed, how you develop and how you commercialize products and how you change your business model needs to come from outside. And that collaboration, uh, you know, I'm happy to see that is, is happening. And even in this situation that we are now, that the market is, is under huge stress, you can see alliances, you know, working on. You can see alliances between Honeywell and SAP, for example. You can see alliances, recent alliances between Halliburton and Microsoft mm -hmm. that, that are pushing towards, like, you know, we are embracing digital and we understand that digital is the key to overcome this challenge that we have in front. Right. So, and I certainly understand the relationship and the and where the value is there, but I guess on the flip side, what's opposing companies like say the super majors for developing all this internally? And would that just delay the results or, you know, cause I'm sure the question is like, well, why do we need to hire these companies if maybe we could just hire certain people and do it internally? Cause I know even us as a company, we've said the same thing is, you know, why use an outside source to come do this when, we, when we've got the people, especially now that it's slow to do it ourselves. Can you touch on that or, or your thoughts on of that? Of course. And that, that is a key point. So that has been, let's say, from the digital oil, oil field kind of programs in the mid 2000 to now, that has been one approach. So super majors, they put together a program. We are going to develop all the technology that we need. We are going to be the leaders and we don't need you know, other companies to be developing for us because we have the capacity. In some fashion, that helps to solidify the program inside the company and that, you know, provides some results. But the issue is that that is not the core of the company, right? So always going to be kind of a, a side project. It's not going to be the core activity that you're going to do in the company. And how the technology has evolved is kind of diluting that kind of approach. Why? Because if you want to succeed in digital right now, you need to adopt open standards. As open as you are, as faster as you are. Right? So if you, if you try to do everything proprietary, if you want to do everything on your own, in your tools, you know, the adoption is going to be slow, it's going to be clunky, you're not going to have you know, the success that you're looking for. But what is happening is that the majority of the tools that you use, disregarding the vendor that, that is providing it, the majority are open, open standards. So if you have that, you can have internal programs collaborating with services providers, collaborating with technology companies because all of them are, are contributing to the same standards and all the pieces that are working together can be plugged and can collaborate between themselves. And that's what, what it's going to do is accelerate growth because right. all parts are contributing to the same goal. Mm -hmm. No, that's such a great point. And I'm curious just on, you know, selfishly, you know, it's funny because when I saw that you were with Honeywell, I thought, well, the only Honeywell piece of equipment or anything I know about Honeywell is, is the little box on my wall that I use to adjust the temperature yeah. in my house. So I'm actually genuinely curious, what is Honeywell actually doing in oil and gas? I mean, we talk about digitalization, but can you give more, like, where does the rubber meet the road and what are you guys actually doing? What does the scope of work look like for Honeywell in oil and gas or maybe part of it? Honeywell is a very diverse company. We do a lot of things and oil and gas is one of our, our major areas for industrial solutions. So, we have a large footprint into what is control, 
control and supervision. So control system, distributed control system for managing refineries, offshore facilities, onshore, etc. But as well, you know, system for optimization, system for blending and movement, for corrosion monitoring. So we have a big breadth of solutions. And what the company is doing now is that, you know, we are converging our solutions into a common platform that, you know, allows the customer and the end user to pick what is the part of the solution that they need so they can get the greater value, right? So yes, Honeywell is working in many, many areas. There is one thing that is happening that's very interesting is that we are converging technology from different aspects. For example, converging industrial solutions with connected worker solutions. So with augmented reality and remote work solution with the industrial solution that we have, for example, for control and monitoring and analysis. And that combination is creating a very powerful solution for the customers. And that is part of the digital transformation, how you can take different pieces and combine them together to to create greater value. Understood. Interesting. Michael, I certainly don't want to leave you on the sidelines for too long. You may fall asleep on us, but I'm good. (laughs) I'm curious, you know, obviously, you know, you're with Nutanix and and I really didn't want to overlook the fact that, that you guys you know, have an interesting, you know, value add to the industry, but you're also tied into OGGN. And I know we're switching gears here, but I didn't want to overlook that. So Michael, what is your relationship with OGGN? And tell us a little bit about, you know, how Nutanix ties into the world of this transformation that Cesar is talking about. Sure. So Nutanix, I think I mentioned before, is a sponsor for the OGGN oil and gas tech podcast, which Mark LaCour hosts. And you know, I jump on that one frequently with him, also with usually with another guest. Usually, usually somebody like Cesar, somebody who I say, hey, I know this person, you know, in, in the industry, they're doing something really interesting. We should have them. I'm sorry. And I guess being a sponsor, you know, I get to like do that every once in a while. And, of course. And, but we've had some great, we've had some great conversations doing that. And I think that, you know, Nutanix sponsoring that podcast and being involved also with OGGN in general. We've also, you know, been involved in some of the live events back when we all used to leave our houses <laughs> and some of the new, and we're, we're planning a streaming event coming up here toward the end of this month. And it's really, you know, none of that is really ever intended to be like, I always try really hard to not, I mean, I'm happy to talk about Nutanix and what we do with anybody who wants to listen but this relationship that we have with OGGN is really about being plugged into the community. And, you know, you mentioned before, or somebody mentioned, I forget, about the collaborations that we're now seeing happening between companies that aren't necessarily purely ONG companies, but everybody's sort of getting together with, with tech companies and cloud companies and software, and, and there's all these collaborations. I think that's been really healthy for the industry. And to your point about the old, well, we'll just build that ourselves. I mean, I think that trend is starting to decline. There certainly used to be a whole lot of that. I mean, back when I, in my consulting days, that was always the thing, right? Is everybody always thought that they, like, now nah, we don't need to bring somebody in. We don't trust the outside people. We need to do this, <laughs> yeah. this ourselves. I think we have a different, kind of a different atmosphere now that's changing for a whole bunch of different reasons. But the relationship here, I think really helps people know, you know, helps us understand Who's doing what? How are people working together? You know, what are the trends? What are the priorities? Because we know that, you know, companies can't just, they can't spend money on everything. So what are the things that are the most valuable? And so this is a really good, this connection we have with OGGN is a really good way to kind of stay connected and understand, you know, get out of our own heads 
right? And like, you ever go to like a company's website and you think this looks really cool, but I think they're just in their own head. I don't think they're really connected <laughs> yeah. on in, the, in the real world. And so this, yeah. this really helps us not fall into that kind of, of a predicament. Yeah, that's a very strategic approach. And I applaud you guys for doing so. Because like you said, it is easy to kind of get stuck in the gutter, if you will. And while everyone's working towards a vision, it doesn't necessarily tie together with what the rest of the industry is trying to do. And understanding the expectations of the market itself, you know what I mean? And then where the demand is, because just because you as an outsider come in and say, oh, you guys should do things, this, this, and that. Well, you know, chances are there's a lot of other factors that are contributing to why they do things the way they've been doing them for so long. And so it's not only changing company, you know, why to do something, but you also have to understand the impacts it has on all the other surrounding industry or businesses or dealings that they may have going, you know, doing what they do. So no, that that's very interesting. And I think that's one of the just huge benefits to, you know, podcasting and, and having these discussions and just creating awareness around the topics themselves. And especially right now where no one's going out for happy hours or maybe they're doing the virtual happy hours, but, but the more community, the more discussions that we have on this topic or any topic for that matter, really just helps the evolution of it and it helps accelerate you know the initiatives that are being taken place and so say sorry I want to switch things back to you being in this for so long you've seen the evolution if you had a crystal ball I mean what does this look like in say 10 years from now and I mean I think the growth is exponential to where I mean, it's just, I think the opportunities are endless. And so I'd be curious, like, you know, what do you have a vision with, with how these go, say, in the next decade and, and what that might look like? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of things are going to change in 10 years. The, the yeah. last 10 years, the things are, have been changing dramatically. Oh, yeah. Right? But one thing I can say is that this situation that we are now with the pandemic and, you know, these new days and new normal that we have is going to accelerate something that was happening before, but now is, is dramatically you know, taking speed, is that the need for automation, the need for getting automated and safe processes, the need to get work processes well-defined, you know, that are safe, that are sound, that give the same results every time. So I think that the companies are going to start investing on that. But in order to get an investment that makes sense and is something that, that can make returns and is, is suitable for the companies, you need to leverage some technology. So, for example, early, let's say mid-2010s, in 2015, 16, the question was, are the operators going to go to the cloud? You mm. know, there, there was a lot of resistance. Some people said, no, no way, the operators are going to keep their data centers, etc. Now, that conversation is not there anymore. Now you get, you know, operators that were very traditional pushing to go to the cloud. Why? Because that is the only way to scale and to manage the cost in order to get the level of automation of processes that they need. Right. So that this movement to the cloud, the implementation of automation technology, automation from all point of view, starting from sensing, from IIoT, going through control devices, but that's well for workflow automation and robotic process automation and, and all these technologies we are going to see a lot of implementation of that. So if you ask me about the future in 10 years, how, how the industry is going to look like, I'm going to say a lot less people in the field, mm -hmm. more ability to get the awareness of what is happening in the field in any device from any side, more processes, more processes automated and then done safely, you know, embedded in, in, in computing system. And, you know, more predictability about production about how a well is going to, is going to perform and how the process is going to perform. 
So I think that is what we're going to see. And I think this decade is going to be very important for that chief. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Especially as oil and gas prices are suppressed like they are, we have no choice but to make that happen. Again, I mean, a whole other topic of discussion is, is where oil prices are going because ultimately when prices are good, people are willing to spend money in R&D and everything else. But right now we have to be strategic and thoughtful in the process in which we do so because there's just not as much dry powder lying around. And, and so it makes it really challenging. But you know, let me give you a thought about that. Yeah. Yes. When the prices are high, you get these big programs, right? And you get the money to execute because the operators are willing to do. When the prices are like they are now, so they are low, then they need push to steer the investment to the digital technology. Why? Because I have, you know, if you are drilling a well, you know, yes, you can develop better drill bits and better technology, but that takes a lot of time and a lot of money to develop. Instead, if you invest in digital, you may have a lot more gains with a lot less investment. Right? So when you have this, this environment of low prices, then the push for digital start to, to, to arise. Yeah. You know, and, and a testament to that comment, it's, that's what we've seen over the last five and six years. So yeah, you're exactly right there, Cesar. So Michael, do you have sort of anything you'd like to supplement with that with regards to your thoughts on the future? It's, yeah. you know, we always like um, to, to talk about the futures. I think it's, it's, it's just a fun conversation at the very least. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that last point Cesar made is really good. You're putting a lot less capital at risk to use these digital techniques to do more with less and to get more out of your current operations. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's the thing that I always, always strikes me about this industry is it's a commodity business, right? It's a commodity industry, but it's a commodity industry where companies have to take huge risks and put enormous amounts of capital on the line. And sometimes for nothing, right? Other, yeah. other times it, it pays off in a big way. I mean, it's, the table stakes are so high in an industry that ultimately results in a commodity product that has, you know, a history of extremely volatile pricing. So when you put it that way, you wonder why are any of us doing this at all? But <laughs> we all seem to be, we all seem to love it, right? We all love this industry. So I think that the future, exactly what, what Cesar said about the automation. And I think, I think automation gets a lot of limelight right now because there's a lot that can be done with in terms of streamlining operations, reducing, you know, improving safety and things like that. I think you touched briefly on the predictability, flushing the risk out of what we're doing, especially in upstream, right? Especially everything kind of up through production. There's so much risk that goes into every state, right? And that's why, that's why it takes years to decide, you know, whether a particular you know, field is going to be developed or, you know, whatever all the different decisions are. So I think the more that we can do to flush out the risk and improve predictability and just so that like oil company executives know when they go to sleep at night that they're not going to wake up tomorrow and be blindsided by some catastrophic loss resulting to a decision or resulting to, you know, outages that were unforeseen. And like all of that is there's so much value in all of that. So I think, I think that's where the emphasis going forward, when you look in the future, you know, less emphasis on expansion of the business and more emphasis on how to get more value out of, you know, what's already there. Yeah, that's such an interesting point made. And like you said, something that you touched on was just predictability. You know, predictable analysis is something that 
like you said, waking up and not being blindsided, I think plays a huge role and and especially on reservoir characteristics, you know, and things like that, understanding well spacing. I'm on the drilling side of things. And so, you know, it's cool to say you can drill faster and faster, but the picture is so much greater than that. And like you've described, Michael, and you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, why are we even in this industry? Well, I would be willing to debate anybody that the demand for energy from now until 2050 is only going to increase. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's not, I don't think anyone would argue that. So, you know, and there's always, you know, again, there's the push on low carbon emissions, this, that, and the other. And, but the fact of the matter is, is unless the population gets cut into a quarter, the demand for energy is going to be there and, and we need to do it sustainably. We need to do it cost effectively and we need to do it in the most responsible way possible. And by that, you know, all this ties into that. And so it's, it's interesting, but you know, before we close out, I certainly want to respect your guys' time here, but I always like to close out with sort of an interesting question, more on the personal side. But, you know, I'll say, Sarah, I'll start with you. So, you know, obviously you're busy with work, you know, perhaps a family man, but what's something about you that maybe not very many people know about? Do you have any interesting, you know, experiences or something about yourself that, you know, you'd like to unleash to the podcast world that might get people smiling a little bit? <laughs> well, you know, because the kind of world that we have, right? So you, you travel all around the world, right? So I've been, been traveling, you know, like 20 years in a row everywhere you can think of, right? And then one thing that I like is to try local cuisine in every place I go. Okay. So that gained a lot of weight for me. <laughs> I try to lose. Yeah, but, that's okay. But yeah, I, I need you to go, man. If you, you go to a specific city and you want to try a good restaurant, you, you, you can call me. Yeah, <laughs> okay. You, well, you know, in Beijing, you can go to this place. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, sure, people will use you as a resource, man. So obviously, you're here in Houston. You're from Venezuela. You know, favorite restaurant to go to, you know, what would it be? If you were to go somewhere tonight, where would you go? Here in Houston, we have, you know, everything. You want to taste, you know, non-Mongolian dishes. You have a restaurant here in Houston for sure. Yeah. All type of cuisine. But, well, I like a lot, you know, the French cuisine. And there is a small restaurant that I miss a lot because, you know, it's very small and I haven't been able to go since the pandemic. But it's one that is called Bistro Provence that is in the memorial area. It's a terrific restaurant. So okay. You, Interesting. I, I don't know if you can go there, but it's truly a good restaurant. Okay, good. Well, I'm adding that one to the list. Michael, what about yourself? I know you got something. I second that on that particular place, Bistro Provence. It is a really good place. So I'm glad because when you said I always like to close out with a, I thought you were going to say song. And I thought <laughs> you can, hey, if you want to sing really, for us, you're no, more than welcome. That was where I was going to, I'm suddenly going to have an internet outage. Or something. <laughs> so something that probably people don't usually guess is that I could probably sum this up best by saying, I think I have 11 different types of power saws. So interesting. Okay. Not just that I collect saws, but I I like to build things such as, well, so if you walk around my house, you know, you can't like inside, outside, wherever you go, you you can't walk around my house without seeing something that I've built. And so the pandemic allowed me to finish the outdoor kitchen that I've been wanting to get done for a long time. So the interesting thing about that, right, is that people, and you know, sometimes I'll like tinker with like building, like, like creating, like, but most of the time it's like, it's kind of like big projects, right? It's like, like remodeling the kitchen or like building a whole new deck or, or whatever. And I have this neighbor who lives in a house I can see out my window right here. And we've been neighbors for many, many years. And he's always sort of a typical friend neighbor relationship. And he's always like, wow, 
why are you doing this? Because, you know, he'll see me like it's 100 degrees outside and I'm like yeah, all right. in lumber to the backyard. And he's like, <laughs> like, how come you're not hiring somebody to do this? You know, are you crazy? And I always try to explain, you know, it's because the stuff that we do, like we're the three of us are all in not the same job, but similar worlds. And, you know, you spend like there's so much like mental energy going into like working with people and all the different scenarios and the predicaments and Mm. You know, and always we're always trying to persuade somebody to do something that we think is best, and, that's so and true, they, they don't. And like the mental gymnastics that's part of the world, you know. And so, but when I'm like building something, all I have to do is measure it and cut it. Like there's not any personalities involved. There's not any like yeah. like weird things that like it's like really. So to me, it's like very therapeutic because. And then when I'm done, you know, I can see like, oh, I built this thing. Whereas like the work that we do you know, especially in the tech world, it's like, it's not always very like tangible, like yes. somewhere it is tangible, but usually not where I am. And so it's nice to be able to just do something and say, I made that. I didn't have to talk to any people while I was doing it. I didn't, <laughs> explain. I didn't have to make any like really hard decisions. I just had to decide if I wanted it to be this big or this big. So yeah. it's a nice break. That is so cool. I love it, man. And I think it's so important for people, especially in this high intensity industry, or I guess any industry, I'm pretty biased, obviously, but it's having that outlet of decompressing, giving that sort of mental break, because it's at the end of the day, I mean, oil and gas flow 24 seven, 365. And so there's no breaks. And if you can find a way to disconnect, I think it's just healthy, not only from a mental, but physical, you know, and emotional with family perspective. And so, no, that, that was a great story, Michael. I appreciate that. But yeah, so before, you know, again, we close out, I do want to take a moment to tell everyone about our upcoming OGGN events. This is Savannah, and here are the events on deck for September 2020. There's the FPSO World Congress 2020, and that's on September 1st to the 4th, and also the 8th, and it's all online. The next one is Building the Future Industrial Summit, on September the 16th, and that's also online. There's also the fourth annual Blockchain and Oil and Gas Conference 2020, and that's on September the 16th to the 18th. Then there's the Genius Symposium and Exhibition for Upstream Innovation 2020, and that's September the 22nd to the 24th. And there's also Effective Leadership Through Change and Uncertainty featuring Condoleezza Rice, and that's on September the 24th. There's also NAPE Summer 2020, from August 11th to September the 14th. And lastly, there's BP Week 2020, September 14th to 16th. That's all for September. Hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Great, thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Gentlemen, that's all I have for now. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is such an interesting conversation to have. I feel like I never get bored of it and it just continues to evolve. So really appreciate your time. If you don't mind, I'll put your guys' LinkedIn links in the show notes along with respective websites. And if people have any questions, can they reach out to you guys? Absolutely. Sure, anything. Absolutely. Excellent. Good deal. Well, any closing last words before we shut this thing down? Thank you very much, Justin and right, Michael. Well, it has been thanks, really, really fun. Thank you. Awesome. Well, everyone out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.